I'm Tyler. I'm Megan. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hey, Megan. Hey, Tyler. We're back for part two of A Benihana Christmas. Yes. Yes. This one, you know, it's hard to it's hard to separate and just do part one and then have a break and come back. But um, I'm glad we get to wrap up this classic office. Do you think we should have done this all in one go? Or do you think, no, these these are distinct episodes that warrant distinct consideration? I think that just for practical reasons, we cannot do it all in one go. <laughs> that is certainly. I think, you know, we're not we're not keeping our original goal to keep these things under an hour, but I do think keeping it under three hours is <laughs> a worthy a worthy aim. I keep forgetting that our goal was to keep it like under an hour. Um, <laughs> that just seems so naive at this point. And yet, I don't know. I mean, I do as podcasts go on. You know, I feel like they often grow the intro stuff, um, <laughs> you know, like the the mailbag and the whatever. And uh, yeah, but as a fan, I always kind of enjoy that stuff. Like the, I'll, I'll see podcasts where it'll say, like, jump to 30 minutes in if you want to hear the episode discussion. And I'm like, no, but I want to hear like, yeah, your random thoughts on Christmas goose and shit like that. So uh, <laughs> but I don't know what our listeners want or don't want. But it, but I, anyway, I don't mind that it's grown. Yeah, yeah. We can see. They can write in. They can let us know. That reminds me, I should check our mailbag just to make sure. Do you, uh, well, should we head over to um, Pam's Corner, receptionist desk? Let's do it. Receptionist desk. You got anything for us this week? I have nothing. <laughs> hey, that was anticlimactic. Nothing came in. I just checked the email. Nothing's there. So uh, okay. I okay. guess our listeners have no complaints. <laughs> And we have nothing at the supply shelf either, unless we'll read we have it. updates. We'll read it as no complaints rather than no interests. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got nothing. I am, I am kind of considering if there are other items that I want to bring to the table for for supply shelf. So yes. there may be there may be things forthcoming, but um, I think I think I'm ready to stread stread. Head, stride, both of those, over to accounting. Yes. For some revisions and regrets. Tyler, I think you've got something for us this week. I do. And so last time I raised the question essentially of like, okay, why, when did Goose become part of the Christmas tradition? Um, and so I did some basic research, uh, beginning with delish.com. Uh, oh. which I don't know how, you know, authoritative it is or not, but <laughs> this is from 2010, the story behind the Christmas goose. Um, oh. And uh, so a, a, a couple of little things I wanted to highlight here. Um, uh, I thought this was interesting. So um, one, okay. So the goose has been perfectly created to make for the ideal Christmas feast Geese are ready to be eaten twice a year, once when they are young or green in the early summer, and again, when they are at their fattest and ripest toward the end of the year, after having feasted on fallen corn. Now, what's going to happen here is very important because it recalls Dwight's um, line that I thought was so bizarre about molten goose grease. Uh, So it said... Can I just... Can we just pause and say that that line... (laughs) 
they are ready to be eaten. <laughs> it's so funny because like they are ready. The way the beginning of the sentence makes it sound like the action really is with them. They're ready, like desiring it and ready to go versus <laughs> like, you know, their body is in the best condition for consumption. It's just really weird and very funny. That's true. That's true. This is definitely an anthropomorphic human centric uh, uh, framing of the goose <laughs> and a post human animal centric approach would maybe question the readiness of the goose <laughs> to have its life <laughs> taken away. Um, but according to delish.com, and I think this is interesting, the goose also has the softest fat in its category of animal. No, oh. I have questions about what that means, what category, but it says the fat turns to liquid at 111 degrees Fahrenheit compared to duck fat, which liquefies at 126 degrees, making it easier to cook and its fat easier to consume. Try it on pancakes. We're serious. Um, <laughs> <ew>. <laughs> uh, just a quick question. When you cook bacon, well, first, mm -hmm. do you ever cook bacon? rarely because it's such a hassle like all the the splatter and all that is just annoying do you like bacon i do okay. yeah i like i like really crispy bacon me too i don't like the flabbier or flat yeah you know, the yeah limp the flask <laughs> yeah, bacon. Bacon. <laughs> uh, disgusting. but uh uh anyway i i have friends that like save all the bacon grease like when they cook uh -huh. bacon and are mortified when i throw it out but i'm just like i don't I don't know. I'm not a frontier person who's like, yeah, know, not a frontiersman. <laughs> I know, but I feel like our culinary listeners are going to be really upset that I throw out the bacon grease. I might have to cut this out. I'll, I'll regret it. <laughs> anyway. Okay. They were thus used as the centerpiece for Michaelmas, a feast day celebrated during the Middle Ages, which fell on the winter solstice and honored the end of the harvest and the change in season. Earlier than that, roast goose was an offering to Odin and Thor, in hmm. thanks for the harvest. And if I didn't like Dwight have some reference at one point to like Odin or something, I don't know. This feels very on brand for Dwight. Totally. It was also richly eaten in ancient Greek culture in order to ensure the crops in the months to come. It was only natural for goose to become the roast choice, roast of choice for Christmas, which eventually took place of the other winter, winter solstice uh, festivities. Hmm. For the American settlers, however, Turkey took Goose's place because that's what happened to be living on their new home soil. I have some problems with the way that's phrased <laughs> from, a, from the questions of indigeneity and colonialism. But nonetheless, uh, we expect very little from Delish.com. Um, so anyway, then it has a number of like literary references to Goose. Uh which huh. I will not read, but if you want to check them out. And then uh, I was looking at the dailymeal.com, which has like the rise and the fall of the classic Christmas goose. Um, hmm. But the short version is that geese are more expensive and difficult to raise. Um, and so others kind of came to took the place, specifically turkeys, um, because hmm. working class families were able to afford, afford um, uh, turkeys instead. So uh, yeah. Which is an interesting reversal, I think, probably of what it was initially. Like, I'm trying to remember in A Christmas Carol uh, what Bob Cratchit's family is eating. Maybe it's just a very small goose, and then they get a turkey. Hmm. I'll, I'll, now I'll have to revise and regret Christmas Carol. Because if I recall, Scrooge 
goes and helps get the turkey big as as the little kid or whatever. Uh, so in that context, one would think the goose is more cheap, but whatever. Anyway, that's what I learned. And all of this is to say that uh, Dwight is right, you know? Right. Christmas traditional. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting because this is a, a real link then between Dwight and Angela, you know, her classic nutmare, nut, I'm having some language trouble today. Her classic nutcracker Christmas and his kind of deep European roots in his Christmas duck history. Indeed. I did also find Tyler, and this is a, a revision and regret of mine, because I was curious, what are the uses of goose grease? And I thought, what a what a lack of intellectual curiosity I showed last time and that I didn't look it up. I just wondered. Um but I've found that it is like an old home remedy used for common things like headaches and coughs. Mm. Um, it appears from my research that, that there's also some other version of it. It seems to be that there's something that is also called goose grease, oh. but that's more like fix, like that has menthol. But I think that maybe got that name because of the way goose grease itself was used. So it seems like there's some kind of evolution there, but it is also, as you've pointed out, used in cooking. And one of the things that I thought was a really funny question was like, how does goose grease stack up in relation to butter and olive oil? Like, mm -hmm. is it better for you? I just kind of thought goose grease just seems so complicated to get, like just go with butter or olive oil. Totally. Just based on the level of effort and difficulty alone. But people are asking questions and uh, finding uses for goose grease still today. Um, I have one other revision and regret. Do you have any others? I do. I've got one other. Proceed. Okay, this was a big one. This, I felt like, was just a big miss, but I did not address this last time. And this is when we were talking about Michael's Christmas card, which we know I absolutely adore. Um, where he puts his face over Carol's husband and his skis and greetings card um, when she is on a ski trip with her kids. And the thing that I just, as I thought about this more, is so hilarious. When you look at it, it is a cutout face. Another thing, even though he's like in a ski jacket and all that stuff, he's got like the collar and tie, like it's his business picture. Oh my God, but I didn't notice. He's cutting out his face and putting it over what I'm sure is his own face. Like, I'm sure that's a picture of him and Nancy Carell, his wife, and their kids. Oh, my gosh. That's so hilarious. He is also the original, but he is putting his Michael Scott self. That is it. amazing. That The layers. I love it. Layers. Um, yeah, so I just thought that was a fun little detail, and I wanted to address it. Did you review... Uh, the placement of the Santa candy cane in Michael's office. I did. That's a dick placement. Okay. Yes. Yeah. It's like horizontal and it's right at crotch level. It's kind like, of curved up. <laughs> it's just, it's not, it's not a coincidence. All right. Okay. I think what? you're right. So you might still be a pervert, but I think that uh... <laughs> <laughs> right, those are your two theories. Yeah. 
both can be true uh true is the candy cane strategically positioned though yeah i think it is all right well so i was right about that and you were right about something so my revision and regret is i went back took a look closely at angela's shirt which you argued in your own perverse way was sexy uh and you know or, or it could be interpreted as sexy I yeah. think a... but you were right that it is sheer in a way yeah. that is like unusual for her and it, it is a really interesting costume choice to kind of mix the sheerness of the um of the blouse or whatever with yeah. its construction which is very yeah like victorian doll yeah <laughs> victorian yeah. doll that's a good point yeah uh, something along, you know, it, it's buttoned up to the neck and it's frilly, but there is a yeah. kind of queerness to it that I was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So it kind of, it's it's a nice reflection of both like her traditionalism and her Puritanism, but also mm -hmm. she's got this other, like she's clearly uh, horny for Dwight in this episode. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, that maybe is is coming through a little bit um so you were right <laughs> thank you <laughs> that's a big turn turnaround for you because you were you were shocked by by my claim on that last time i was i was like are you kidding me with this um but you i appreciate know. i appreciate you coming around um yeah so any uh anything else we want to um that's all that's all i think we're i think we're ready to get into it all right. Well, so this is a Benihana Christmas part two, uh, season three, episode 11. Uh, and the description um, from Peacock is Karen and Pam host a margarita fueled karaoke bash to lure people away from Angela's overbearing Christmas party. Um, as with all of these descriptions, I'm often kind of like, is that really what this episode is about? That doesn't feel like the central <laughs> action. It is, but it doesn't hmm. feel like the most significant thing to talk about um but yeah. maybe we could start on our cliffhanger which has uh basically stanley staring into the camera uh and we're left in suspense on whether he will choose um karen and pam's party or angela's party as mm -hmm. we discover uh right after we resume he will choose karen and pam so my first questions to you are number one is Stanley a tastemaker of the office? And secondly, do you have a theory on why Stanley chooses uh, Pam and Karen's party? Oh, Tyler, these are hard-hitting questions. Yeah, I don't make it easy on you. You know, this is a, a journalistic podcast. Yeah, is Stanley a tastemaker? That's a great question. And what are the things that go into having that kind of influence. One thing I'd say about Stanley is, do you ever have people in your life who like you, but they don't like a lot of other people? Like it's hard for them to, uh, they're not like, they're not easily one necessarily. They don't just like everybody, but if they like you, it's like, oh, this feels good. <laughs> you know, like I have won this person over. I feel, I feel like, like we're one of those people in my life. Yeah, definitely. We're, I, wait, I'm one of those people? I think so. Yeah, I'm like, holy shit, Megan likes me? I'm I, like, yeah. No, I think it's the 
confusing the fact that I'm not that enthusiastic with Christmas with being a hard <laughs> a hard person. I like a lot of people. Um, I have strong opinions about certain social behaviors, as we just <laughs> um, as do you like the not scooting over at a table, but all you gotta do is be, you know, basically polite. Um, <laughs> but I do feel like I would really like to be liked by Stanley because I think it would be hardest to get him to like me. Yes. And so I think that that could give him a little bit of that tastemaker allure. Mm. At the same time, is it partly just being in the position of being the first one? Like, is that where you set the tone? And once the flow starts going, going one way, it keeps going that way. Mm. I don't know what goes into tastemaking, Tyler. Well, that's an interesting question. Does the tastemaker like choose to be the maker of taste or mm -hmm. is it in some sense a kind of like un is is not willing it part of what makes you the tastemaker, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not, yeah. Not consciously trying hard to set the yeah. tone, bizarre, you know, like does that seem, it doesn't seem like a position he's vying for. No. Uh, but like coolness is a similar thing right like you you can't surely the cool person is aware of their coolness and it is an affectation to some degree but also you can't try hard to be cool or because that's yeah. the emphasis of cool so uh, <laughs> but maybe it's just that yeah you're right he's the first he is very hard to please mm -hmm. it's kind of among probably he's probably the most antisocial person in the office right like or the most unsentimentally antisocial or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like he's not interested in being connected with anybody. So uh, yeah, but do you have a theory on why he chooses theirs? Because I can see reasons why he wouldn't. It's going to be loud. Uh, there's going to be more people. Yeah. It feels kind of like there's not it's just all is it almost feels like a flip of a coin kind of thing to me in some ways for stanley like he's just kind of like uh whatever maybe partly that door is closer maybe partly does angela do angela and phyllis annoy him more mm. is it phyllis's perfume and he wants to get into uh the other party i like that i don't know what if i told you there is actually an answer would you want to know where did you get this answer is it like from the actor it's a deleted scene it's a deleted scene yeah that i accidentally stumbled across when i was reading the script okay well first i want to hear what is your take based not on the deleted scene based on the What's, evidence and then I, say, I prefer not knowing because uh -huh. I think it's it preserves the um, mystery of Stanley. The yeah, yeah. That Stanley's desires are, um, on the one hand, they're like obvious, right? Like he's like, let's do as little as possible and get out of here. You know, um, yeah, yeah. Does not want to be bothered. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, but the deleted scene is very. I mean, it's a very funny answer. Uh, and it makes okay. sense character wise. Okay, let's hear it. 
Okay, so apparently this is deleted scene number eight, which normally we don't go to this territory in the podcast and we and we may circle back to the deleted scenes. Yeah, we'll do, I think we should do some annex episodes with deleted scenes. I love that idea. And okay. as we're doing the podcast, like I'll go back and watch extended versions after we've recorded. Really? Not like I'm not like on it, you know, where like tonight I'll watch the deleted scenes, but like I do not watch any of the extended things until we yeah. have recorded that episode. Yeah, I only came across this when I was just searching for the script. Anyway, so Stanley says, I'm going to the party in the break room because they have more chairs in there. If I have to stand around a long time, I get real unpleasant to be around. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Huh. Okay. I find that very funny. <laughs> I don't feel like it's technically true. I think they've got a lot of chairs in the conference room. They're all around the edges, right? That is really true. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's strange credulity. Um, Maybe they decided it's logistically. It's not accurate. Stanley doesn't think he could get one chair in the conference room. Yeah, and the other, I mean, just the way that it's shot, it really does seem like the karaoke one has zero seating or very little seating. So Yeah, you're right. It's like kind of crowded with people in there with the tables. So. I will say... You're right. So Stanley doesn't tend to get very excited about things. But one thing I just love is when Kelly um, has has given Stanley one of the drinks and he's she asks what he thinks. And he says, fruity and delicious. Yes. Like, it's just there's something so, I don't know, sweet and positive. And I like it that he enjoys the same drink that Kelly enjoys. Yeah. Which is uh, too sweet for um, Meredith, right? Too sweet for Meredith. Yep. <laughs> I found that to be. Are, have we really seen Meredith's alcoholism much to this point? Yes. Haven't we? <laughs> I think, what have we seen? Uh, We've had hints, right? They did the, um, the you know, the, the other Christmas episode when Michael goes out and buys all the vodka. Yeah. And then they're doing shots. She's yes. very enthusiastic then. Um, so there there have been, yeah, we've we've seen it. Oh, there's the time on Valentine's Day, you know, where she's got her cup that she's filling up. Um yes. and she's like cutting limes in the break room. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, you're right, you're right, you're right. Um Yeah, so we know this about Meredith. And she is lured in, yeah, when when Pam and Karen say we have vodka. After, after Angela kind of like threatens her uh, to come to her party. And then Kevin has a big debate. And interestingly for Kevin, what he's weighing out is that Angela's party has double fudge brownies, but also Angela. So he's not even weighing it out as like double fudge brownies versus margaritas. It's right. the positive of the brownies versus the negative of Angela. I love a margarita and I would really choose the margarita. I but, love margarita too, but I also really love brownies. Is it just me or did those baked goods look really good? good. They look really I good. I don't see why you couldn't circulate through, um, you know? Yeah, they did. it was not set up. It was not set up to encourage that. That's but. true. Well, so a question I have for you related to this uh, is what does your desire for a party reveal about who you are so like what is it that one 
wants in a party and like and to what extent is that wanting yeah revelatory of anything um about you yeah uh, because hmm. i i'm wondering i mean i can never predict your contrarian taste but <laughs> part of me that suspects that a karaoke machine would not lure you to a party situation but am i wrong do i how well do i know you this is a really good question and a complicated one i am not really enthusiastic about karaoke mm. but at the same time depending on who's doing it and depending on what songs they choose i can enjoy listening to it at this i also like a party that has an activity i think where it's then well i don't know that that's always the case but I think it helps avoid awkwardness because like there's something there communally to yes. do and not just that you have to talk to people the whole time and do that kind of weird transition where like you've been working right next to each other and talking about accounting for seven hours and then you transition into this other room and you're supposed to not talk about accounting and like go into social mode and that kind of thing. Kind of like when Jim has his party. There's another yes. party I guess, compared to, but um, Kelly says something to Oscar and Stanley, like, oh, do we have to talk about work? And then when they don't, it just gets silent because it's kind of weird to switch switch modes. So I do feel like the karaoke idea is helpful for switching modes and into the party mode. I guess Angela also has an activity, which is nutcracking. <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah. So is so is that desire that you have for an activity revelatory of something in particular? Like, yes, social. Uh, yeah, I get that. <laughs> I think. I mean, the parties that I've had that I feel like are the best tend to have, you know, some kind of trivia situation, or we had a Halloween party and. Corey came, uh, a devoted listener. Corey uh, came as a, um, a Nailed It chef. Have you seen Nailed It? No. Uh, it's like a Netflix show where people make baked goods, but they're terrible at baking. And so oh. um, that's kind of the amusing part is like how they strive to make these complicated cupcakes and stuff. But yeah, what they produce is terrible. And, and so Corey came as a chef, but then brought a ton of like cupcakes for the entire party to decorate. And then like we judged yeah oh, that's so cute and it transformed the party it was it was wonderful like because oh, it kind is of, wonderful. you know it got people moving around and it gives you like something to talk about that is external to yeah your job or like the party itself like which are yeah. two things that are difficult easily exhausted or exclusionary you know like if you're mm -hmm. going to talk about your job and shit you know um yeah so anyway yeah. I agree with you I like an activity I think that's important um uh, anyway, so I guess you and I are similarly socially awkward. <laughs> That's the lesson. Um, one thing I appreciate about Angela's party is I do like having a theme. I like that she, I like that it's a nutcracker Christmas and that she has the music. She's got the nutcrackers on the table. She's got the nuts for them to actually crack. I've never seen one of those nutcrackers actually used. I feel like they're mm -hmm. mostly decorative, but they do have a, have, have a function and they can, um be used for nuts but i like how 
coherent that is. So there is something I, I can appreciate in what Angela's doing here. I find nutcrackers to be profoundly disturbing objects. Really? <laughs> I find their, their strange dead eyes, which are exuberant eyes and yet lifeless. And their mouth I find to be menacing. And the like range in which they appear mm -hmm. is like distressing to me because their construction is always like essentially the same, you know, and I, I, I find them to be like really unnerving objects. And uh, I don't know why, you know, and and I do remember my mother having a bunch on the shelf, you know, this is like pre elf on the shelf. So maybe they they serve some sort of surveillance function in my mind. But I also remember being like, oh, cool. Like, can we crack nuts? And it was like, no, these are just to look at, you know, and uh, I always found that strange. Like people who buy like dolls and action figures and leave them in the packaging. And I'm like, what's the point? Like, wh what are we doing here? Anyway, uh, so I agree with you about a theme. I'm big on a theme, uh, but the Nutcracker... I would have wanted to see if we're going to commit to this. I'd want to see Dwight fully painted up and dressed like a Nutcracker. I think that would have been a an elevation. That would be a good. That would be a good costume for him. He'd be a very good Nutcracker. Something about that feels appropriate. Now there's an interesting moment where the camera people presumably ask Pam and Karen, "Are you taking this too far?" I wanted to get your takes on that moment. Oh yeah, and Karen. <laughs> Doesn't Karen say, I don't think we're taking it far enough? Yes, which gives me <laughs> chills. Um, I I liked that. I liked Karen there. I liked her militancy. I felt like she was just really going all in and fully committing. And they did make a really good party. It looked fun. They had uh, good drinks. Lots of people. Yeah, I think I, I I liked that in Karen. I liked it taking, I think there's something I appreciate about taking something low stakes and turning it really high stakes. Say more. I don't know. It's just, there's something, something fun about it being, making it so serious. And then take, there's something fun about taking things seriously, I think actually. Now, yeah. would you I say this is, would you say that's an accurate description of what academia is? Like taking something not oh. really serious, taking it way too seriously. Oh God, completely, completely. But with no sense of irony or no uh, sense, like I think maybe that's the thing. Because I think Karen, I think that like academics can't admit or say, well, none of this really matters. But Karen could, right? It could be like and, you know, you can kind of give it up or, you know, there's something like playful about it. Maybe that's the kind of the missing piece in academic taking everything so seriously. Am I going to get canceled for this, though? For uh, which part? <laughs> um, saying that academics are taking themselves too seriously. No, I think, uh, give it up. I think the whole world would agree with us, <laughs> including most academics, or I think all the academics that we like would be like, yeah. <laughs> but I also think, I mean, I, I mean, I, like there is something 
it is interesting like the way you described it like taking there's a pleasure in taking something that is low stakes high stakes you know and i agree with that and i think that that's why i could spend hours and hours debating like a trashy horror movie and it's politics mm -hmm. you know or something and there is like an academic impulse underneath that but the wink or the kind of sense of like yeah i understand this the stakes of this are rather low is very <laughs> important to the entire thing like and that's why sometimes when i you know i don't know if you've ever been stuck at a party with like a guy who's really into star wars and is like oh, God. um you know without any irony wants to like mansplain to you about why you know yeah, that star yeah, wars yeah. is like really you know the height of art or whatever the fuck you know and it's like mm -hmm. insufferable in the same <laughs> yes. to me when people are like you know but your reading of freud is just <laughs> like, okay all right you know <laughs> i don't know <laughs> so i don't think you're gonna well at least um you're not gonna get canceled by me is this the entire underlying impulse of this podcast <laughs> <I'm too. laughs> i didn't realize it, but it's true <laughs> Where at first we're like, um, you know, <laughs> nobody really wants to listen to this much. We should keep it under an hour. And then we're like, no, we're not taking it far enough. <laughs> like, if we are going to take this text seriously, we need three hours. <laughs> and you know, when we like start to, you know, be like, hey, look, like, why don't we form, a, you know, the office studies conference and oh, like yeah, publish sure. a proceedings, uh, you know. <laughs> Because that's the other thing. Every academic has to turn their, like, you know, pleasurable hobbies into, like, publications. <laughs> Everything must be monetized. And anyway, but, you know, I do think you're right. That is the underlying premise of the podcast. And that's why this is the last episode. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that's fun. It reminds me of um, recently, well, semi-recently, with my sister getting into doing handstands in the backyard and like trying to do um oh this is what it was trying to do synchronized cartwheels and like at this point when we're almost 40 like doing cartwheels across the yard is absurd but like getting really into something and taking it seriously so we're like we're gonna keep trying and we're gonna try to get the timing right and we're gonna try to align our legs so they all go at the same time like that's the kind of thing i'm thinking of where it's like low stakes and stupid but if you go all in and you yeah. take it really far it's really fun that's true it's about an attitude right and i think that uh, Angela, what they're doing in the episode is like parodying the seriousness with which Angela takes her party. Yeah. Yes. So there, is a, there is a satire of her, even as it also kind of shows that like there is like that kind of seriousness can produce conviviality and pleasure and joy, you know, among four people in the office. Like their kind of like meanness actually gives rise to a great party. Um, but also it requires this kind of repair or something. They kind of come back together. But before yeah. that, I, I did want to ask or say, you know, I felt like there might be a reading of this. And I don't know if other episodes have done this or whatever, but this episode does feel to some degree like it's about relationships between women or how women can be mm -hmm. competitive and 
um, manipulative and like it's a kind of unsentimental take on mm -hmm. and I thought it was a really interesting line when Angela says oh what is it um uh let me find it it's about her sister um <laughs> oh yeah she says I don't back down my sister and I used to be best friends and we haven't talked in 16 years over some <laughs> disagreement I don't even remember so yeah I'm pretty good <laughs> um <laughs> Which comes right after, are we taking this too far? I don't think we're taking it far enough, you know. So there is, <laughs> I, I thought it was an interesting kind of representation of women in the workplace and being like inter-competitive um, or inter, I don't know. Um, there's a power, power play. Yeah. It seems like with that too, we see two different ways that this plays out in terms of how other women in the office respond to Angela's meanness and to mm. Angela's leadership, because if she is like the queen of all party planning committees, essentially, because we've got Phyllis who still stays with her party, but she gets all defeated. And when Michael and Andy and Dwight come back, she's like, there is another party. Um, mm -hmm. And waves them away. So she's sort of longingly, you know, hey, she stays committed with Angela's party, but she longingly hangs out in the doorway and gazes toward the other party. And then you have Pam who tends to just kind of like sit and let it be and just kind of deal with it. Like she doesn't seem like she gets personally defeated by Angela in the same way, but now she does this alliance with Karen and then we've got Karen and Angela has been so mean to Karen, but so Karen goes military grade in her, you know, taking it as far as possible. Karen and Dwight, maybe they should be together. <laughs> they should <laughs> um i'm trying to think if there's anything oh well i just did like phyllis's look of despair like the shots you know were oh my gosh. Being like is it cold you know is it cold in there yeah. it's really funny and you're right like she stays i think there's a part of me that's like why would anybody go to angela's party because i find angela so um distasteful <laughs> but yeah. uh, but i think you're right it's really interesting that some are kind of cowed by her um, and, uh, but so this is all paralleled with another plot and we're going to have to really talk about this because <laughs> in searching for the script, I accidentally came across, I'm curious. Okay. I promise this is not going to become a podcast with external knowledge, but, uh, can but I specify what kind of external knowledge, what my take on this is because I like to have external knowledge and we often use external knowledge that's like research how far is it to the nearest hooters from Dunder Mifflin for example like things like that like contextual knowledge what I don't like doing and what I try not to expose myself to is like the interviews with the actors and things like that where they kind of give or the writers where they give like what's their take because I just don't want them to come in and take too much control over what we're actually seeing and kind of letting letting the text stand however i am open to what you were going to share i think the reason i want to share this is because it i think i don't i think we would have arrived at this anyway mm -hmm. uh, but i think it's an interesting so i was i was just googling for the um script and yeah. googling benihana christmas 
um, script, whatever. And like it, what came up like right away. And I, I wish I remember the date, but it was like, I think relatively recent, but one of the actresses who play one of the waitresses, have you seen this? I accidentally came across this as well. Okay. So do you, do, should we bring this in or not? Yeah, bring this in. Yeah. Bring this in. Basically said, you know, that she feels like this episode is racist and that it, or that it plays into a you know a, a classic um, racist stereotype in which all Asian people look the same, right? And the episode itself is dancing with this trope. Um, and so one of the things that I was wondering, you know, for your take was to sort of like to what extent does the episode kind of um, acknowledge that that's what it's doing, and you know where does it kind of fall short of like is there any way that it could have made this work but mm -hmm. I find it like kind of I don't know I find it interesting people keep saying like like I remember seeing uh uh Mindy Kaling and some others you know just casually say like oh the show couldn't be filmed now because you know these things would get it canceled or it would be inappropriate or something and I was like I don't know that that's true because I do feel like the impulse behind this episode was not to reproduce a stereotype I thought it was to sort of make fun of Michael's ignorance but I also really agree that like it doesn't really maybe market or go far enough um in ways that we would expect now um anyway but so I just thought it was really interesting that and I was like maybe that's why it's so hard to find the script for this episode I couldn't hmm. figure it out but um but yeah so Thoughts on the uh, yeah. the kind of basic premise, which is that Michael's got a rebound, um, but he can't remember which person is the one that he's interested in. Yeah. So, well, maybe we can kind of get into some of these scenes and then like try to draw some conclusions about that. Because I was thinking about the same thing and wanted to ask what you think. Like, ultimately, is the joke on Michael or is it on the waitresses? Right. Because it sounded like from what the actress said that she felt like the joke was on her and the message was laughing at that idea. All Asians look the same. But so I think it's always the difficult thing. I think when you do comedy, that's about stereotypes or honestly, I think about this, like in classes, when you do any discussion that's of stereotypes, because there's always this possibility of like, what are the things that you're going to walk like, what are the things that people are going to walk away with? What's the message that they're going to take away? And does it reinforce the stereotype and the idea? Or does it mock it in a way that undermines it and reveals it to be idiotic? Right. Um, and embarrassing. So it's like, who in this episode, it makes me think, who in this episode um, should be embarrassed? Like, who is, who do they make a fool of? Like, who is, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, like how, how does it kind of evaluate them? Um, so let's go to maybe some of these places. Um, first of all, one thing that I thought was kind of funny, like where they start to make, where Michael starts to get confused or the confusion starts to kind of surface. Um, when they're still at Benihana, he and Andy are talking, they're looking at two waitresses who are standing and talking and looking at them. And one of them is Cindy, who has been their server. Mm -hmm. And uh, Andy says, because you've had such a rough day, you get Cindy. 
also as if like <laughs> gets to assign right like who is gonna like who and that kind of thing um but then we see one of the waitresses who does end up at Dunder Mifflin walks past them but they're looking and talking about these two that they're going to invite these two and then immediately though it cuts to them walking in with two waitresses in the same uniform but who are not the same people <laughs> right and where that like we don't know how they got these two to come with them mm. how they selected them how they talked to them they don't seem to know their names right like we hear cindy's name their server but we don't ever learn their names he comes in and introduces my girlfriend but never says who she is so that's kind of set up and how they get there um and then yeah so michael's having a conversation he's talking to the the girl that he came with um since we don't know their names i'd say like there's the one with bangs and there's the one without bangs and michael's is the one without bangs with the kind of side side part um In the script it lists her as second cindy uh, oh my gosh or at least the scripts that we have i'll check imd yeah um, yeah oh yeah that would be interesting what she actually yeah um but actually was called um but it's when they're talking that she he's talking to her then he kind of turns away and she turns away and when he turns back it's the uh, he touches the other girl's arm or something and then she turns toward him and so then he continues to have this confusion from there when <laughs> he let's talk about the arm marking move so when well no maybe there's like a few things okay so there's a couple scenes i just want to bring in for us to um think about this so michael is i think he's sitting on a desk and he's over he's talking to roy and kevin and he says when you just know you know and then he makes one of those noises that's like <laughs> i enjoy when he does those um check her out my little gal over there babe electable which one is she? And he looks and is unsure. He says, it's the, it's one of those two. You don't know, Roy asks. And Kevin tells him, dude, you should know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's been hard. They're wearing the exact same uniform and I've been drinking. And you know how all waitresses look alike. So what did you think about this exchange? Because that's where they like most directly point to that stereotype idea. You all look alike. Um. Well, first, just to quickly circle back, uh, in uh, at least on IMDb, all the actresses are given real character names. So we have Nikki, Amy, and um, Cindy. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, um, but I don't know. You know, the scripts that we have are not like official scripts. So, and it's certainly the case they're never named in the yeah. actual dialogue, and so that you know that seems relevant. Um, but yeah, you're right. That scene really is where like a lot hinges. What I found interesting in it is that like Roy and um, Kevin's facial expressions are sort of difficult to read. Roy mm -hmm. especially is like bemused. And mm -hmm. certainly like I think the joke is meant to be on Michael there. But um, but yeah, it, it, I don't know. And, and Kevin's line really stresses like you should know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and nobody else seems to be having this problem that right, right. is, but it is the case that there, there is a way in which the episode, okay. So that cut, I, the cut from the Benihana to the 
office without any marking of the fact that these are different people or different actresses is very funny, but mm-hmm. also very subtle. And mm-hmm. I don't think that subtlety is bad. Like, I don't think that we yeah. should force, you know, that the, the episode has to didactically say like, hey, viewers, like you should, you know, rec- see what we're doing here. But at yeah. the same time, like, like I can see why the actress would find this to be just dehumanizing, you know, that like the episode doesn't, like it allows a potential audience to sort of be aligned with Michael's point of view, probably mm-hmm. more than more than one would want, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. But at the same time, like, they don't look at all alike. And the, and like you said, bangs, no bang. Like, they do things to mark before he literally marks her. Um, yeah. And so I sometimes wonder if, like, if, or you know, as I was reflecting on it, like, do we need another scene or something? You know, like, what if we had cut into the scene where they're in the break room and the dialogue, you know, give us, give us, like, 30 seconds with them, you know, saying something that even more intensifies just how racist Michael is, right? Or or whatever. Um, but it's interesting that he says all waitresses look alike. He understands the problem with what he wants to say, like, because he silences it. Um, and so in that moment, I'm like, is he is he silencing it because of the cameras or is he silencing it because of Roy and Kevin who would sort of chastise him or... Uh-huh. what um i don't know those are just my thoughts i mean and again like i'm not trying to defend the episode i'm just trying to like unpack yeah no what? i totally agree and i think it's a really the interesting thing about subtlety with these kinds of messages yeah like this isn't a show that gives you um nice moral lessons but i suppose if you're a writer if you're making a show One of the nice things about moral lessons is that they allow you to make your stance really clear and they allow you to proclaim, see, we're not racist. Um, Whereas like with the, yeah, with the subtlety, it does leave open the different kinds of readings. But it felt here like Michael is clearly the idiot. And I thought the fact that both, with both Roy and Kevin being like, wait, or Roy being like, you don't know? And Kevin being like, dude, you should know. Yeah, like, that seems important. Getting clearly right, putting, because there he is getting the feedback. Like, this is, this is not good, Michael. Um, he then goes into his self-justification, <laughs> which is funny through a comparison to Stevie Wonder. He goes to his interview. Yes. He says, uh, and I'll say too, the fact that it then it cuts from that scene to him having an interview in a, in the office, and it seems like then the camera crew or the documentary people are questioning him about this, even though their question isn't in there, it's in his answer because he's clearly getting pressed on it in some way. And Michael says, I honestly don't see what the big deal is. Stevie Wonder is married. Are you going to tell me that Stevie Wonder doesn't love his wife just because he's not sure what she looks like? So it's like even in the, you know, him having to kind of um, explain himself, it seems like the question is there, but that maybe in terms of the actress's critique and response and concern about what the message of this is, 
you were asking like, you know, what else could it do? I wonder if one thing that could be helpful is just like you were saying, you know, one more scene, or if there was a scene where it was the two of them, Mm. you know, the two, like, like you're saying, like scene that's the two of them talking. So we get them not only interacting with the office people, but talking to each other. Mm. That Bechdel test thing, you know, like, are there ever two women who talk to each other and talk to each other about something besides men? <laughs> like, do the two waitresses ever get to just talk to each other? And I don't think that they do. I don't mm. think we hear them talking to each other. It is, it's, I, I just keep thinking about the, um, the stereotype itself, the yeah. idea that people of X race all look alike. Yeah. Which is a joke. Like we'll hear people say now sort of be like, well, I can't tell the difference between white people, you know, like they all look alike or whatever. Right. And it's this kind of reverse discourse of white, uh, um, you know, I guess white supremacy that kind of articulates the idea that people of all other races all look mm-hmm. the same. Mm-hmm. And um, at the same time, it is like a pervasive phenomenon, right? Like uh, students of color will often talk about being misrecognized in classes. Like my professor mixes up you know, the two black people in the room, even though we look nothing alike and we don't sit next to each other and all this kind of stuff. And so it's an, it's a like highly charged scene of experiencing racism, I think, like to be like not only misrecognized, but also to sort of uh, like frame like one singularity is just a generality or something. Mm -hmm. I I was Googling around like, uh, like what is the origin of this hmm. like why all people of x race look alike or whatever and came across some like interesting you know kind of like neuroscience studies and whatever in the it was kind of talked about in the new york times or whatever and what i found because and i was like oh god here we go they're gonna like try to justify <laughs> this um problem but in fact like what they were saying is basically like you know people are socialized perceptually from a very young age And like, if you are only around people of a particular race and not exposed um, or encouraged to be exposed to like, you know, other kinds of racial uh, uh, features and communities or whatever, right? Not given dolls, toys, shows, like cultural representations of racial and ethnic difference that like reinforces or intensifies this um, uh, problem or whatever. So it's not like an inherent fact but like mm-hmm. something that is but it's also like something that it that does shape our kind of perceptions or whatever and so anyway it's just interesting that this this show is often about like um or it often uses michael's limitations <laughs> as like a middle-aged uh middle-class white straight man to sort of like work through you know the the cultural conditioning of like whiteness and straightness or something like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would be, yeah, like all you'd need to do, I feel like, is just have more Asian characters, mm-hmm. right? Or like you're saying with the Bechdel thing, like have more, you know, like have a couple more scenes or something that kind of unpack this more or something. I don't know. But because you're, it's like the thing, it is showing something that is real. I mean, like you're saying, the experience your students have, like a real experience that people have is that, is like, you know, being mixed up. And the thing about perception is making me think about how 
we can look at people and just sort of pull like certain key pieces or key markers kind of and be like, oh, you know, Asian and waitress or whatever. So it's like when he goes in there, like what are the things that he like the minimal bits of information that he seems to then be pulling and just kind of going on that so that he's not noticing, like he's noticing they're women and they're Asian. He's not noticing specific things about how they actually look where it's like, you can just kind of take the label thing and then that's enough. And that's all that you kind of store. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. I'm remembering too, the fact that he's thinking of this place as Asian Hooters. Yeah. I was just thinking that that he's also thinking about like, what is the purpose of these women and how is he seeing them? And it's that they're there for, hotness (laughs) hotness <laughs> like yes, they're right. there and then there's also the specific the specific so there's the all asians look alike stereotype in general but then there are the specific stereotypes of asian women as um exotic and erotic and kind yeah. of passive in a um sexy and desirable way so yeah. it's also just making me think about like what is the function of these women for him and it's not to be full people who can be differentiated. Right. It's to be Asian Hooters. And so, like, the mindset and the approach that he's going in with how he's treating them, like, of course he comes out and can't differentiate them. Kind of. Does that make sense? Uh, Based absolutely. Based on what's in them, but what's in him. Yes, yes, yes. And... And again, like that's not to say that the episode couldn't do a better job or or and and I do think from what I read with the actress, like I think, you know, like many of these things, it's never just like one episode, right? It's like if the acting opportunities systemically for Asian actresses is just to be like a, an essentially unnamed, misrecognized, fetishized character, yeah. then it's even more dehumanizing and contributing to like the lack of any kind of humanizing and differentiating representation right so it's it's never just one episode right it's like a whole hollywood system but yeah your analysis is so smart because it it reminds me that like the asian hooters thing makes those two terms equivalent right and like hooters is all about like you know boobs and fetishizing a particular part of women's bodies right and like turning women turning women into that object. And so to compare or analogize Asian with Hooters is to emphasize Asian yeah. as fetish as a, yeah, and, and yeah. we know that it is right. Um, yeah. But, or it's it is. It's not like they go to an Italian restaurant and it's like Italian Hooters. Right. But like right. another like white ethnic group doesn't translate in the same way. Yeah. Like the fact that Benihana, which is not a sexy restaurant so easily aligns like can be interchangeable with Hooters yeah it's great and I think the episode invokes some of those other stereotypes with Angela being like you know something about the Hello Kitty backpack yeah um, yeah which is both like um racist in the specific sense of like associating you know this you know one object of Asian popular culture broadly defined with a particular person and then making all kinds of assumptions there but then also the infantilizing childlike nature yeah. of yeah. with which we assume asian women to be 
or the the kind of cultural racist stereotype yeah. is infantilizing and childlike. So, um, so that stuff kind of gets deployed. Uh, but there was something else that I just my mind went blank. Um, oh yeah. Oh, the other point that you made that I loved was about so all waitresses look alike. That is also really interesting because like it goes back to Andy's kind of narrative where he goes to the barista and thinks the barista is like should you know should recognize him and be hitting on him and this mm -hmm. it's kind of fascinating to me the idea that you would go to a restaurant and try to pick up the waitress or something <laughs> like that or the waiter and the kind of images or cultural narratives we have of like leaving your number for the waiter or waitress or vice versa the waiter yeah. or waitress writing their and I think on the one hand, it's because it's a charged scene of a power relation. And whenever mm -hmm. we see power, you know, scenes of power relations, they often get eroticized, right? Because eroticism is about differential relations in power. Um, so it leads into a particular sexual fantasy, but it's one that is so thoroughly patriarchal, right? It's like about being served. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and the waitresses do all like dress alike there is a uniform so the similarity is is like intensifies this idea that you're saying of a kind of fetishized objects um mm -hmm. yeah anyway I, I think i think you're saying something really interesting it's one thing that's interesting too about their uniforms is that they are like the opposite of pooters yeah. they're so covered like they're not super form-fitting they're very high up they're kind of tan you know like they're not there's nothing flashy at all about these uniforms so there's just a lot yeah this that's really interesting about the way that michael and andy are approaching this place um i love how though they just the waitresses just are like we've had enough of this <laughs> you know at the end when they're like uh we're just going to take off. And Michael tries to get her to go to sandals. And she just says, nah, I have school. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so in terms of the relationship. And takes the bike. I love that. And takes the bike. Yes. Yes. So I do think that they win. They beat Michael here. The other win for Benny Hanna staff that I want to point out that I really enjoyed is when Dwight gets into the debate with the chef about the nakiri versus the usuba oh, knife. I love this. Dwight is being so annoying, but also so perfectly Dwight. He says, initially, I didn't actually get down this whole quote, but he says something like, um, oh, I see that's a nakiri knife you're using, right? Um, let me just get this line here. Asuba. Uh, asuba? Yeah, looks like you've got a little nakiri knife action going there. Chef, no, it's asuba. Yeah, I bet you wish you had an Akiri, though. Actually, the Asuba's a better knife when you're working with this quantity. Dwight, nah, I don't know. I still think the Akiri's better. And then the woman sitting next to him says, I think he'd know. <laughs> uh. And I think that woman is so right. I yes. think of like questioning and thinking you have more expertise than the person who actually knows what they're doing. Dwight, just show a little respect. Also very funny and interesting that Dwight has this specific knowledge of different kinds of knives. thought yeah. that was a nice, nice bit of character content. 
And I also learned a little bit about the differences between Nakiri and Usuba knives. Ooh, go on. Both considered excellent knives. Key difference is that the Nakiri has a double bevel blade. So you know where it's like angled up like at the blade part on both sides. The Usuba, it's a single bevel blade. There's a stronger edge on the Nakiri and a more delicate edge on the Usuba. Um, you have to be an expert to sharpen the Usuba. And it's also really for professional chefs, whereas the Nakiri is more geared toward everyone. So it's interesting that it's something where it's like Dwight has the thing that is, you know, for the commoners who think they know everything, but the chef has the thing that's actually for the professionals who do know everything. <laughs> I just want to say, yeah, I loved that. Um, I love that that woman kind of stood up to Dwight and, you know, I was yeah. like, this is, this is such a great example of mansplaining where <laughs> just like, you know, and mansplaining other men, you know? Yeah. Um, and I guess it's also like kind of white splaining as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I thought that that was, yeah, I totally love that. I was, I also was very um, amused by the attempt to, for Jim and Dwight to speak at the table and mm -hmm. one leans forward and one leans back and then both lean back, you know, to try to match yeah. the case. I don't know if you ever have this like um, in class sometimes, like I'll put students like in a circle basically and like, but sometimes the circle, you know, has lines and I'm like trying to see who's speaking and like, yeah. <laughs> and it always drives me crazy. Um, so even though I love this woman, I still feel like that couple should have moved. Down. Completely. I just think Completely. like, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. And uh, I loved Michael being like, it's family style and taking the steak off that guy's plate. It was so damn funny. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> There's one other area that I want to discuss, and that is karaoke. Yes, me too. So, Tyler, you asked me actually a little bit about my relationship to karaoke what's yours do you like karaoke yes i love karaoke um so i don't okay i i do not like and wouldn't really like karaoke in the way that it's happening uh in the latter half of the episode where um you have people standing up in front of everybody singing on their own i hate yeah. that kind of karaoke but i love a karaoke room and so when Kevin, for example, is singing Alanis Morissette, a great scene, and everybody else is singing with him, I really enjoyed that kind of karaoke because I'm a yeah. terrible singer, but I also don't have a lot of shame around it. And so uh, I think the one thing I can contribute to a karaoke room is like, I'll get people, I'll get singing, you know, and mm -hmm. like, and other people singing along. And I think it's, that's a fun experience when we're all just like singing together and no one person is like, on stage or something. Um, so anyway, I like it. I, I've like gotten a bunch of people in my department to go to karaoke in the before COVID times and oh my used to have a lot of like birthday party type, you know, like let's meet up at the karaoke place and I'd reserve a room. There was one time where I was really depressed after mm -hmm. work and Jen and I went to the karaoke house and they like gave us our own room and it was like a massive room and we just like sang for an hour and a half you know, oh, so I find it really like uh, lovely, but I haven't really done it much since COVID. And I, so I'd really like to get back to it. Um, yeah. 
But that did it did make me wonder to what extent we should re read into the songs that people choose as their karaoke songs, um, because, yeah. you know, I feel like a karaoke song on some level, it can be an expression of your interest preferences, maybe interiority, but it is also more often a song that you know well, you can sing well, and you think will play well to the crowd, you know, so it's not, it's like a social choice as much as it is an individual one. Yeah, yeah. That is interesting. Um, the people I always hate at karaoke, I also have not been to karaoke in like many, many years. But when people choose a song because it's long, Ugh. like an American Pie song, which I hate, I this is one of those social things, like the people not sliding over, people who just choose a really long karaoke song that is so annoying to me. But we do have people choosing songs that seem personally meaningful to them. So Kelly sings the song that's about We Belong Together. Yep. We have Dwight who sings a song by Styx, Lady Alone. Like I saw you standing there alone and whatever else the lyrics were. Creed is singing a song by Creed. That's amazing. Creed Branton, not the band Creed. Like his own song. That's awesome. I did not know that until, until this time around. Um, Angela is singing The Little Drummer Boy. And my favorite thing about this is that in episode one, season one, episode one, Dwight was singing the same song. It was not a Christmas episode, but just he comes in and he's like putting things into his desk and he's singing like, you know, the Pahrumpa Pum Pum stuff, but then going. And so they have this link around the little drummer boy song. Amazing. I don't remember that at all. Holy crap. Yeah, go go back to the to the pilot. It's there in the beginning. And so this was such an interesting thing then to like pick up this connection between them. Because I'm sure when they were doing the first season and they didn't think they were going to get any more seasons, it's not like that was planned all along or something. But I thought that was a really cool little detail to pick up. What and do you I make of the song choices? I was just going to say, I love that he does the drums. I love that song. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, what did I think about the song choices? Uh, well, I I mean, my favorite, of course, was Kevin's like uh, intense, you know, um, Alanis singing. And to some extent, I was like, oh, that's it's interesting. This really is an, a breakup episode, right? Like, and so that is a classic breakup song. And even though Michael isn't really like singing, yes. it does play into the themes of breakup, rebound grieving anger whatever um that is a great breakup song and then uh it is amusing to me that um michael and uh andy are singing um john mayer <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i just uh it's <laughs> such a silly song to me like it's on the level of that james blunt uh um goodbye my lover song it's like the it's in the same genre of that um, yeah yeah and uh yeah no i but i i think you're right that like each song does kind of express where these characters are at to yeah. some degree and it's interesting that yeah angela likes the little drummer boy yeah in particular i mean that it connects to her love of little children on posters uh with musical <laughs> instruments so true know? yes uh it's like a, a an exact correlation for that it's also 
got that militaristic uh, drum beat, you know, and yes, and Ooh, certainly Tyler. it's a it's a song about Jesus or whatever, right? Isn't the little I drummer like boy? Yes, good uh, reading of drummer boy. <laughs> and I just also I like that I love that Dwight does the drums, and uh, I found that very charming. There, Dwight's like reaching out for her hand is very sweet. And that was very sweet. I thought Dwight's looking at her when Pam and Karen kind of come to make amends and they mm-hmm. say, Oh, we heard the party was, was, you know, the, the food is great and whatever and merge the parties. He definitely is looking at her like, come on, do it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I thought that that was just an interesting dynamic. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and since we're talking about the Kelly singing, we belong together. This is the first episode where I actually thought she was right. I felt that Kelly and Ryan had a kind of cute chemistry and Ryan was never hotter to me than he was in this episode. Um, Really? Yeah. I thought Ryan was kind of hot. Like when he's singing along in the break room to the karaoke. And then um, when he, I think she takes his hand and they run into the party and, and he's kind of dancing at one point. I was just like, okay, Ryan. I need to rewatch with Ryan in mind. I thought he was a little sexy in this episode. So, um, okay, I'm writing this as a question uh, for myself. Was Ryan a little sexy in this episode? I did have one logistical question for you, which yeah. is um, okay. So, and this does kind of connect back to our um, question around how the episode represents, like, you know, women and specifically Asian women. Um, and so, <laughs> Michael says, uh, you can have my bike. And then she says, thanks, I want to give you something. And she whispers in his ear and he says, that's what she said. (laughs) Yeah. What is it that we are meant to think that she is going to give him? (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) Um, But I like it leaving it. I like it leaving it unknown. I love his... That's what she said. You know, in the last episode, he was laying on the floor crying over something he thought over his worry that maybe Carol left him because there was something foreign and scary she wouldn't do in bed. Wasn't that his his yeah. line? And here it's funny, it's kind of like a flip side because the assumption is she says something dirty to him, obviously. Right. Um, but he now it rather than being scared or like thinking it's hot and being excited about it in that way, he's just giggly about it, like thinks it's very funny. So there's a a youngness to that, right? Like just hearing something like that is very funny. Like he can't kind of contain himself. I had thought, you know, on some level she's saying, I'm going to blow you, right? Or I'm going to give you a blowjob. And uh... give, because it's, yeah, because there's something she's going to give him too, right? That's like the starter. Yeah. And so I kept trying to think, like, how would she phrase that in a way that would enable the that's what she said? Um, mm-hmm. But nonetheless, the reason I think this is important and not just because I'm a pervert is because, first, to some degree, this only plays further into the fetishy stereotype. However, mm-hmm. it also suggests narratively that she is, if not into Michael, open to being with Michael in some yeah, momentary yeah. sexual way at the beginning of entering the party. However, 
by the end, Michael is told this, like explicitly says this party blows. Oh, yeah. Which is a reversal, right? Like, assuming that she was going to blow him, now the party blows. And he has (laughs) blown it with her. (laughs) And that suggests that something has occurred to sour her on him. And Mm -hmm. that, I mean, again, it may be too subtle, but it makes me wonder, you know, obviously these women get, or they should, we should understand that they understand that he can't tell them apart. And to the extent that that is or is not the case, I think that might be one place to locate why she is basically like, no, we're going to leave and you're not coming with us and I'm not going to give yeah. you what I was going to give you, but I will take the bike. Um, yeah, yeah. So huh. that's my... Oh, uh, that's, I really, really like that connection. Um, on a semi-related note, a couple things back, just your things about the um, the karaoke and that your body is a wonderland that is just like a song that makes me cringe like there's something so cheesy and gross about it yeah but also a really interesting choice in terms of the way they're thinking about these women and like their entitlement to their bodies and like their bodies are not wonderlands like they don't know they haven't like (laughs) because the, your body's a wonderland has such an assumption that like I have already touched and had and explored all of your wonderland body right and it's like you just met them at this restaurant and they're here fully clothed untouched by you it's just it is such a presumptuous and disgusting song to sing to them actually um it is gross <laughs> I've never met a woman who likes that song like everyone oh, really? I've ever talked to about that song has said, not to make generalizations about women yeah, yeah. feelings about that, <laughs> but just like I feel like I've talked to a number of women who are like, ew, that song is so fucking gross and cheesy or whatever. And I'm like, that's because it is a man's a straight man's vision of what it is that a straight woman would want to hear from him. <laughs> and, it, and it seems mainly to produce repulsion, although I suppose it was a big hit, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um repelled i guess i just have one other one other thing i just want to get in the record and that's that at the very end oscar and gill open the door see what's happening when angela's singing and oscar says too soon yep nice we'll look forward to him coming back from his i've uh, forgotten that he's gone yeah yeah going all the way back to gay witch hunt episode wonder if there's a reason other than narratively why he was gone um Oh, yeah, like if something was happening in his life while he was gone, or like at some other role or something. But yeah. we don't do research, so we're never going to know. Um, <laughs> we'll never know. I have a couple of things. Uh, one, I wanted to ask you uh, about Bridget Jones's diary. Oh, yes. Oh, I forgot to mention this. Yeah, please. Just, uh, have you seen it? Did you like it? Oh, I loved think? it. Me too. I was like, what the fuck? They both hate it. This is such a terrible movie. They're such hipsters. They're such hipsters. I despised them when they said that. I thought that Me was too. so precious. Um It's like, come on. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Like, how could you both hate that? That was a great movie. I I loved it. I still stand by it. Um, so there was that. Then I wanted to say uh that one of the two actresses at the party, um, is uh Kulap Vilaisak who is it's the she she plays the um 
the woman at the end who says, uh, you know, no, I have school and like, oh, yeah, yeah, those party blows. Anyway, um, I really love her. She was on Comedy Bang Bang. She hmm. is married to the I've talked about that podcast and show before the guy who hosts that show is Scott Ackerman and oh. they're married to one another. But she has her own podcast that I really enjoy. If people want to check it out, it's called Add to Cart with Kulak yeah. and Su Chin Park. Um, hmm. And uh, anyway, so it's just a fun podcast on consumerism um, that she's on. So that was a random thing I wanted to say. Um, another random thing is, uh, have you ever like heard a party that you're not at? Because I was thinking of, I think it's like Angela, but also basically Phyllis and everybody at the, that, that party are hearing the noise and excitement of the other party. And that Mm -hmm. kind of, that really hit me because I can remember, I remember early on, for example, I was Jen and I had like just started dating and she'd invited me to a party and I was, and I said no, partly because I was like, I think trying to play it cool. And then also uh, I was intimidated by the idea of like going to this party and meeting like all of her friends so early. And so I said, oh no, like I'm busy. I have something, but I didn't actually. And she (laughs) called me during the party to be like, oh my God, we're having such a great time or whatever. And in the background of the party, everybody's like, woo like and like and I felt so stupid and small and jealous and I was like I'm such a fucking idiot like why did I skip out on this party and uh and I was thrown back and I remember telling Jen that later and she was like yeah that was really stupid you should have gone to the party and I was like I know you know but anyway so I was just wondering if you've ever had a moment where you were like didn't you weren't at a party but you heard the party and you were like ugh I don't, I don't know, because I don't think that typically makes me want to be there. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it's more been maybe on the phone, like overhearing it and been like, okay, I'm good. good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but Tyler, that's a heartbreaking story of you learning not to play it cool. Yep. Well, I, you know, it's the one time I tried and, and uh, lesson learned. Okay, the last, and this is significant to me. This is the last thing I have to add into the record. So the camera people ask Jim whether or not, or why it's different. um, Like, to what extent is his pranking Dwight different from what it is that Pam wanted him to do? And he starts to say, like, that it is different. And then he basically is like, oh, I guess it's not. So he says... um, uh, this is when he pranks Dwight, I guess, about the goose, how to butcher a goose. And he says, oh, no, this is different. The CIA thing, that was a prank on Dwight. This is more like, um, okay, this is pretty much the same thing. Now, two mm. things about that. Number one, it is very interesting how in this episode, the camera crew is positioned as kind of the moral um, voice of judgment yeah. of the audience. Oh, that's a great point. In yeah. this moment, they're saying, well, so wait a minute, how is that different? And then um, they're also asking implicitly, uh, Karen and Pam, have you gone too far? So it's just yeah. kind of interesting. And they were point. asking Michael about his inability to distinguish. Yes. So hmm. they are representing to some degree, I feel like the audience's questions and judgments about these yeah. in this instance, huh. even though we don't explicitly hear their 
address. And yeah. then this sets up the important turn at the end, which is that Jim accepts Pam's gift and they decide to send a helicopter for Dwight, which leaves Dwight on the roof. Um, and I think this is important for two reasons. Number one, it circles back to our question of like, what go, when is it going too far with Dwight? And I feel like this is mean. I think this is really, yeah. really, really mean. Yeah. He throws away his cell phone. He's yeah. up on the top. And it's like, I don't know, isn't it, is it Christmas Eve? Like what, what day is this? But nonetheless, it's just, it's just mean. And then, so there's that to me, I wanted your reaction to that. But the yeah. other thing is, I, I think it's a very sweet moment when Michael and Jim are talking and Michael's like, you're making fun of me. And I love that yeah. because I was like, that is a moment of, like vulnerability but it is also a moment of like assertion like mm -hmm. so rarely do we see michael capable of like processing his emotions in the moment and yeah. i think it is a really interesting thing to say like don't make fun of don't make fun you're making fun of me it's such an interesting shift and yeah. he's rhetorically calling it out rather than what he might normally do which is overcompensate become defensive try to one up um yeah and then Jim genuinely says, sorry. Um, yeah. And Michael is able to sort of admit, I guess I didn't know her very well. I marked her arm, you know, and he says, why do I feel like crap? Another moment of like genuine recognizing of ambivalence and sadness. And Jim says, you had a rebound, which I thought was a lovely, sweet way of reframing his experience as a way yeah. It is true in a way that that is what he was seeking, mm -hmm. even if it is also a very generous <laughs> redescription of what, <laughs> what has occurred. Yeah. And whether Michael deserves that generosity is neither here nor there. I meant <laughs> beyond the bound. But yeah. it is also clear that Jim is talking about himself. So he says, don't get me wrong. It can be really fun distraction. But when it's over, you're left thinking about the girl you really like, the one that broke your heart. And I feel that this underscores the message of the episode, which is that all of Jim's like reactions to Pam have been out of pain and that he, yeah. she, in his narrative, she broke his heart and therefore his distance his he's self-protecting, perhaps punishing, perhaps whatever. So it's a pretty yeah. big move for him to accept yeah. the gift at the end. Um, yeah. So those are my. This really, I think, confirms your. um reading from last time about it sounding like he's saying it's because of the promotion that he needs to not fall into the same things, but that there's the subtext of it being about Pam. And I think you're right. This really confirms that, but I, I totally agreed. I thought that that was a sweet moment and interaction between them. And yeah, just sort of a quiet, sincere, right? Like something that starts out as being in Jim's going down the track of being insincere but the you're making fun of me cuts it off. And then it does become this genuine moment, kind of like back on the booze cruise when um, yes. Jim told, told Michael that he liked Pam. And there's something very sweet about those occasional moments between them. And it's not just men. He does have that moment with Pam too. It's just hmm. that Pam, like he goes in for the kiss at Diwali. Yeah. So there are yeah. a few moments... I suppose the difference, though, is that when Pam, with Pam, Michael, like, either tries to turn it into sexual or it sometimes feels maternal on her part, whereas with Jim and Michael, it does feel this kind of homosocial bro, bro down. 
or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting because it's like a very, um, a much more tender kind of bro interaction than, say, the Andy version. Yes. <laughs> right, right, right. It is. It's like the tender side of it. Um, the last thing I would say is that I did think that Michael or the Dwight's narrative was he's been compromised. And what I thought was interesting about that is that the plot hinges on Angela, Pam, and Karen compromising and yeah. like bringing the party oh. together. And uh, so I thought it was kind of fun as a like, you know, another, a different iteration of compromise. Because oh, that's fun. Yeah, I like that. To be compromised is to not be like pure. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Huh. That is nice. I like that. Did you think it was mean having him up on the roof? Totally mean. Yeah, very mean. And getting rid of his cell phone, that they were maybe going to get him on a bus to Washington, like, ugh, mean. Yeah. Brutal. Well, I think it's time for us to head over to Chili's. I think it's time. Tyler, I had no no doubts about who my Dundee was going to this time. That is shocking. Because mm-hmm. I'm still in the dark a little bit, so go for it. Yeah, I ooh, I didn't actually come up with a with the title for this award. Um, so I'm just gonna call it the karaoke award, and it goes to Kevin. I loved it that he chose an Alanis Morissette song. It is a great song. He went all in on it. Um, it was fun, as you pointed out. It was fun for the whole crowd, and um, I liked him pointing out a song that I feel like some people would kind of think of as like, you know angry girl music kind of yes, but him, yes. like right as a guy like this is just a great song and it is a great song as he proved yeah you know what also, you're right. you my out. one other, my one other moment with him was him saying dude you should know to michael about um uh telling the the girls apart so that those are the two winning moments for and he for goes me. to angela's party and is kind of he does go to angela's so... party yeah yeah um well so, I, yes. I have the compromise award and it's a it's for um karen and pam and uh i think they are magnemonious um <laughs> and uh and a model of of how one might uh repair yeah. a particular breach and they do so by coming and saying you know um saying nice things to angela and extending you know a hand to her and i think it's important because she is the one that really initiated this mm-hmm. like she's the one that was so mean to karen and ejected her and yeah. so i i really feel like jim is an idiot karen is um karen's great i know great and i don't see so far any aside from her sneering at bridget jones but they even seem to share that so yeah um, they do so good for them even if we disagree now you might be saying, shouldn't Angela also get the compromise award? Uh, no, no, yeah, she stole she's, that karaoke chord, and uh, she's still not talking to her sister. So exactly. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Yes, uh, we will be back next time for uh, season three, episode twelve. What is yeah. the title? Do you know the title offhand? Nope. (laughs) But we know it's going to involve some reflection on a trip to Sandals. So I look forward to it. Oh, yeah. I think it's called Return from Vacation. (laughs) Ooh, beautiful. 
Okay. All right. Well, we'll see you all then. All right. Bye.